This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Jane Ashford discusses her newest Regency romance, Married to a Perfect Stranger. Then PW Children's Reviews Editor John Sellers calls in from the Bologna Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So on the uh, hardcover fiction list, we have The Stranger by Harlan Coben, uh, clocking in at a very strong number two. It is uh, just barely behind Paula Hawkins's The Girl on the Train, which has been on the list for 11 weeks now. Uh, so you know, Coben's doing pretty well there. And uh, our review of The Stranger says that he continues to turn out thrillers that put highly original spins on a current trend or problem. And this one is not quite so full of nail-biting suspense, but it's very clever and thoroughly entertaining. Uh, And so there are family secrets, uh, a lot of small-town drama, and uh, lives and reputations are lost along the way. Our review says that even when he's not at his best, Coben is very good, and readers won't be disappointed. Now, when I was looking down the list, I actually noticed that he appeared on it twice. He's also down at number 38, uh, on the list, and that is for the signed edition. So uh, Dutton decided to put out a signed version of the same book, um, and that edition alone sold 1,300 copies. So wow. there are clearly some some big Harlan Coben fans out yeah. there uh, who see this book as one to collect. Right. And I know we've talked about uh, Harlan Coben before. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, he, he appears on the bestseller list. Yeah, pretty quite, quite pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, so moving on down the list, uh, the only other really big new book is uh, at number 11, and it's Cuba Straits by Randy Wayne White. Uh, present day Cuba is the setting of this thriller. It's the 22nd in the Doc Ford series, and obviously Cuba's in the news right now uh, with the improvement of relations between Cuba and the U.S. And so uh, yeah, this is kind of a, a very timely book that will be appealing to people who are watching the headlines. But uh, in this case, it's a blend of sort of baseball and uh, international intrigue. And we say that White smoothly combines history, action, and colorful characters into a savory concoction easily devoured in a single sitting. And it's got this uh, lovely sort of old-time feel on the cover, you know, the, the pink right. stucco and uh, the, the neon, which gives you that sense that I think a lot of people have of Cuba as being kind of stuck in the past. And it'll be interesting to see how that changes. Yeah, and I see that uh, part of it takes place, or at least uh, a stepping stepping off place from St. Petersburg, Florida, mm-hmm. which is my hometown, oh. um, and not, not necessarily Miami. So that, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, th- th- it, it feels like it has a real sense of the place, yeah. uh, the setting, and uh, I, I will be interested to see whether books like this feel very dated or outdated right. uh, as as the real world moves on um, or, or whether there's still a place for them. Sure, yeah. 
So what's happening on the nonfiction side of the list? Well, we're also slim uh, this week, but number six was, is a, uh, the subject is Steve Jobs. The book is called Becoming Steve Jobs, The Evolution of a Reckless Upstart into a Visionary Leader. It's written by two authors, Brent Schlender, who's, uh, who for 25 years wrote for the Wall Street Journal and Fortune, and uh, Rick uh, Tetzeli, who is the executive editor of Fast Company. Uh, we didn't get the book in time. It was embargo, so we don't have a review of it just yet. But they kind of break down the conventional one-dimensional view of, of Jobs that he was a kind of a half-genius, half-jerk from, from a young age. And they say they take a, quite a different look at him, and, and they really look at all the details of his life. And uh, like I said, this is uh, at number six on on our list. And uh, number 16 on our list is Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now by Ayan Hirsi Ali. Here she uh, continues her journey from a deeply religious Islamic upbringing to a post at Harvard. So her books have been New York Times and Globe and Mail bestselling author of, of books like Infidel and Nomad. And here she uh, makes a powerful plea for Muslim reformation as the only way to, and I'm reading from the copy here, and the horrors of terrorism, sectarian warfare, and the repression of women and minorities. So um, obviously it's um, resonating with, with quite a few people. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's meant for a very wide audience? It sounds like it's not just speaking as, as one Muslim to another, but uh, really reaching out to a broader group. Yeah, most definitely. Exactly. Yeah, it's Harper, you know, published by Harper. So I think they, they probably had that in mind when they were releasing this and when she wrote it. All right. So I, th- I think that's it for our list, sadly. Yeah, there's not much this week, but no. uh, hopefully next week we'll have some more. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jane Ashford tells us about the wit and glamour of Regency England. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kathy Airway, the author of The Food of Taiwan, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Jane Ashford on the line. Her new book is Married to a Perfect Stranger. Hi, Jane. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking. So this is a romance novel set in Regency, England. Um, Tell us a little bit about that time and place, and then about your story and the characters. Okay, well, um, I, I love the Regency period because I think it's a time of great wit, and um, the fashions are, uh, e- you know, easy to uh, enjoy as opposed to some of the earlier years. And uh, also, of course, uh, it's very popular because of Georgette Hayer and her wonderful work earlier in, uh, well, early in the 20th century. And um, when exactly is the book set? Um, it's 1819, and um, the the story is uh, we have two young people, and each of them come from fairly large families, uh, and each of them is sort of labeled by their families as the least likely to succeed. You know, um, someone used the term white sheep, that is opposed to a black sheep there. Mm-hmm. They never, ex- not much is expected of them at all, and their mothers think, oh, these two, they're kind of alike. They'll probably get along. Why don't we marry them off to each other? They have a little, each have a little money, and they'll be able to live, you know, as well as, you know, they can manage. So uh, being nice, you know, young people, they go along with this, and they marry. Uh, and then almost immediately, the uh, John, the husband, who works at the uh, diplomatic, at the foreign office, is uh, tapped for a mission to China. Uh, England sent a mission to China in that year, in that time period. 
and um, it's a big coup for him, and so of course he accepts, and he goes off. And in those days, a diplomatic mission wasn't a matter of hopping on a plane and spending a couple of weeks. I mean, he was gone for two years. So, uh, so in that time period, he develops as a person. He becomes not so much the white sheep, but somebody who steps up and does some heroic things during the, the shipwreck that happened on that mission. Whereas Mary, and I chose very uh, kind of generic names for them on purpose, uh, Mary is sent off to live with the great aunt, thinking we'll just kind of put her on the shelf until her husband gets back. But it turns out when she gets there that her great aunt is uh, kind of suffering from dementia and the household is just in disarray, and she has to also step up and take over and become, you know, much more of a take charge person. So the book opens when John returns and they and they meet each other again and they discover, wow, this isn't the person I remember at all. This is some new person who is, I don't, you know, I don't know and I'm not sure I like, but gosh, it's kind of exciting too. They're much more powerful personality. Through the book, they have to kind of navigate this, this new uh, relationship and obviously they fall in love. So you talked about... Um what drew you to this, what draws you to this period, to the Regency period, especially this year you talked about, was you could have fun with the style and, and the dress. Tell us a little bit about that, as well as the social mores of, of the time. Right. Well, it was, um, it was obviously a little freer than the Victorians who came later. Um, people were, you know, in the... Although the Victorians were probably freer, actually, but they pretended not to be. But it, it was uh, it was a time when wit was greatly valued, and... Um, I love the language, which, uh, again, we owe a lot to Georgia Hare for doing the research and finding some of that slang that was used. And it it just seems a, a, a kind of sh- shiny period to me when people were, uh, were romantic comedy really, really fits into that time period well. And the Prince Regent, I mean, he's fun. He was quite a character. And uh, others, it, eccentricity seems to have blossomed a bit. Uh, and, and and yet the classicism of the 18th century was passed. People were a little more um, open, and I, I just kind of like everything about it. So you mentioned the Prince Regent. Um, obviously, the the newlyweds John and Mary, who I guess are not so new newlyweds uh, when they were reunited, also come from a bit of money. Tell us a little bit about um, what it's like to be writing London's high society at that time, the upper class. Um, right. I wouldn't. I, I, I have done other books which are more in the upper class. I would. I would really not define them as upper class. They. Hmm. Um, they're. Um, they come from more the gentry, um, and one of the things about that happens in the book is they they bump up against the upper class because John's trying to make make his way in into the you know make a success in the diplomatic corps and in the uh, in foreign office where he works as a kind of an analyst, you would call him now. And um, so they they aren't quite as familiar with how how the upper class works or they're not they're not connected the way the upper class tends to be even now. So um, when when Mary makes a, a, a kind of a faux pas at at a, at a party they, they eventually get invited to, it, it's it's nearly disastrous for them. Hmm. So you said this was a time of a little bit less class stratification, but those elements clearly still made a big difference. You got your um, your jobs by connection. If you were in, if you were a nobleman's son, you went into certain regiments. The 
seventh cavalry or the or the horse guards. Um, it was it was very much still a, a matter of who you knew and who you were related to, and which is one reason. Uh, one of the John conflict uh, in the book. One of them is that he there's a much better born uh, and connected um, fellow in the foreign office that's always sort of sneering at him for his background and, uh, and making jokes as if he. Uh, for example, does he know what a footman does and things like that because he doesn't come from one of the large households that have a lot of footmen. So, so John and Mary are, are right on the edges of that, but they're not, they're not in the middle. M- Mary has a great talent for, for drawing and for, for capturing the, the sort of essence of a person. And when they're invited finally to uh, a, a party by the head of the foreign office, Lord Castlereagh, she does a portrait of his wife, which reveals far more than Lady Castlereagh would prefer and she gets quite offended and this is something they have to overcome in the course of the book. So so tell us a little bit more about Mary and how she evolved. I mean, her husband uh, describes her as a, a managing female. Right. Once he's back, he does. And this, this is, you know, because she comes from a household with many sisters and as I mentioned before, she's been sort of one that nobody thought was going to ever do much. But when she sent off to this as I said, to this great household and discovers that nobody's in control anymore because their great aunt is ill, she has to... She, at first she looks around and like, oh no, what am I going to do? But then she finds within herself the ability to take over and manage the place and what you know, do everything that, that, a, uh, that a managing female <laughs> needs to do. And she finds, in fact, that there's more of her mother in her than she realized, and she, she's quite good at it, and she she kind of enjoys it. And when her husband comes back and says something to the effect that people don't like being told what to do, she she sort of murmurs under her breath, I found quite the opposite. They they like it very much. I mean, they, they like somebody to step up and take care of things. So, um, so she, she's sort of forced into her own power at first, and then she finds she enjoys it very much. There's also a bit of a suspense element in the book. There's a, an investigation that John is undertaking. How does that play into the the romantic development? The two of them getting to know each other again. Um, well, he he does. He he's he's come in contact with Chinese culture, and when he and and the uh, the China mission has gone very badly. Actually, the emperor wouldn't wouldn't receive the delegation because they refused to bow down and tap their foreheads on the on the floor in front of him. So. Um, when John gets back in his work, he realizes that they, they really need to understand China better. So he starts going into the slums where um, there were a number of Chinese sailors around London at the time. And at first, he doesn't tell Mary anything about this, and she gets quite worried and offended. She feels that he doesn't, doesn't talk to her, doesn't tell her what's going on, and he thinks that he has to protect her from the things he sees and the, and the, you know, bad conditions in the slum. So it's the cause of conflict for them at first in that they don't, they don't confide about this. And then later on, he, he realizes that not only does he want her to know about him, but she can be very helpful in many ways in terms of his kind of sneaking in and out of the house and changing into his shabby clothes. And so they, they come together over this, uh, over this element, and she also very much admires his dedication and his 
his wish to, you know, help the country, their their country, through um, finding more information and figuring out, you know, what's going on. Uh, and so when when this kind of uh, sinister figure starts lurking around their house and she notices it, they eventually, after some troubles, work, work together on resolving how, how that's going to be. And you have a, a, a few unusual side characters, uh, including a mischievous monkey. Uh, did, did that just add some comic relief? Well, I love romantic comedy, and I always try my best to write romantic comedy, even though uh, there can be other elements, as you said, since. Um, I, I, I love uh, romance, but I love romance where I also get to laugh. And um, so I, I always have to have, have some secondary characters. Um, who can hopefully make make the reader laugh a little bit or at least smile. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Jane Ashford, who's the author of Married to a Perfect Stranger. So tell us a little bit more. You mentioned Georgette Heyer. Who are some other of the Regency authors? I mean, I think people mostly sort of think it's Heyer and Jane Austen, and that's it. Uh, who, who are other authors who've inspired you down this path? Well, you know, in terms of Regency writers, I would have to say she she was probably the main inspiration. I, I haven't I haven't over over my career read a lot of other Regency authors, but I, I feel um, I feel partly it, it, you can get you can pick you know pick up things inadvertently, and I wouldn't ever want it to be ending up writing on the same book someone else did. When I read, um, as I said, I love I love romantic comedies, but I also love books where there's lots of other things going on. Um, for example, one of my favorite recent books is uh, by uh, Lois McMaster Bouchot called Captain Rochelle's Alliance. And it, I guess, would be categorized as sci-fi, really, but it's actually a romance and it's very, very funny. Um, several, I mean, her books, Cordelia's Honor and a civil campaign are the same like that. And I, and I also like books like Mercedes Lackey's The Godmother where, again, it's, it is a romance in the end, but uh, there's there's so much more going on and it's kind of a different world. And it's kind of something I, I tend to read as opposed to um, trade regency. That's fascinating. I, I love science fiction and fantasy, and I feel that it often has the same attention to detail, to building a setting or uh, building up characters that, that romance has. Do you, do you feel like there's a lot of crossover there for you that you've, you've learned from those books? Absolutely. Uh, I, I admire Bouchold. She is so funny. I, just, I dream of being as funny as she is. I, I laugh out loud when I read her books, and yet they have plenty of adventure, and you know they have her, her world that she's built uh, is just fascinating. Uh, so uh, I, I do think there's lots of crossover. I, I think, you know, I think there's love in just lots of books, and it doesn't have to be called a romance to uh, to be a, a love story. And and when when I read 
something like um, Cordelia's Honor by Bujol, where um, you know two two people are stuck on a planet basically by themselves because of various things, and they're on opposite sides in the war, and yet they fall in love. And then the beautiful, the beautiful thing in that is, is Cordelia finally brings, when she finally brings her husband the, the great gift. It's like the head of his enemy, and she just <laughs> drops it on the desk at a big meeting. I, I don't know. I, I just. <laughs> I, I love her. I love her work. I, I, I really would like. It. And, and also, the thing that grips me in books beyond the comedy is, is this character. I I, 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 I try to write, you know, real characters with some depth, and I, I love reading that. My maybe, probably one of my all-time favorite books is called Folly by Laurie King. And it has a bit of romance at the end, but it's not really a romance. It's about uh, a woman who has had really traumatic experiences and she goes off to an island alone to try to recover without a lot of hope that she will at first and she builds her own house and it's part of the I mean it's the, the recovery comes with her doing that work with her hands really beautiful book I recommend it to you <laughs> so you have also written under your given name Jane Lecomte Lecomte I have. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, that was early on. What made you decide to use a pen name? Well, um, uh, I, I I wrote under the pen name first, actually, and then I wrote some books under my own name, and then I went back. And uh, I'll tell you, actually, the reason for the pen name. Um, you know, I love romances and I respect them and I admire them, but I spent a, me- a number of years in academia where that's really often not the attitude. Uh, where romances are um, maybe less than they used to be, but they, they're not very much um, respected. And so when I began writing romances early on, I used a pen name because, frankly, I was quite shy about it. And there were a, a number of years there where I really didn't tell people I did that. Hmm. Uh, and then um, I uh, and then I wrote the, some novels under my own name, which were... Um, I'm very proud of and were well received and uh, and thought I would go on with that and that, so I had a little gap in the romance but I really found that um, what I had to what I had to, the stories I had to tell were more uh, along the historical romance line so I went back to it and became less shy and got some websites and told everybody that I wrote both things. So tell us a little bit about your your work in academia. Were you, were you teaching? Were you researching? I uh, I have a PhD in English, and so I spent a, a number of years in graduate school. And then I, during that time, taught a, a lot of freshman English, and afterward, for several years, taught um, those early years of ten sections of freshman English, you know, per year, and um, eventually found b- between my not being sure that's what I wanted to do and the market that was just full of young PhDs out there, I found that I was going, I was, I was leaving that, uh, that milieu. So do you write full-time now? I do now, although I, I, it's, it's a great privilege of the last few years. I, I, I worked at a number of other jobs in, in the interim. And when did you know that you could make a living as a writer? What, what do you think sort of pushed you over that edge in the last few years? I'm I'm, I'm stumbling a little bit over the phrase "make a living." Um, you Fair know, enough. Uh, it's it, it's almost a living, but 
I, I think that um, one of the things I love about romance readers, among many other things, is that they, they love to read and they want more books, more books, more books. So it becomes possible to, you know, sell more books pretty much as fast as you can write them. Um, I'm in awe of the speed that some people do write them, but um, so there's a market there and there's an ability to, uh, to sell some books, and especially now when there can be uh, electronic books and audio books and various ways to, uh, and even overseas, you know, people have interest in this. For some reason, people in France seem quite fond of my stories, so that's very interesting to me. <laughs> so I, I think that there's a um, there's there's a hunger out there for for uh, good romances, and that allows a writer to, to you know make a living. How, how many books do you write a year, and and what is your writing routine like? Um, I, I'm I'm right now um, attracted for two a year. Um, as I said, I'm in awe of people who can who can turn out many more than that, and I've seen them talking about it, you know, on the web. Uh, and I wish I could. Um, my routine is that I have to begin in the morning. Uh, if if I get diverted into some kind of errands or hassle, I I just somehow it's hard to get back. So I get up in the morning. I have my and I and I start right in and write all morning, and then with a the break, and then um, hopefully go go back to it in the afternoon. Some days other things have to get done. I'm a morning writer. I, I love that you have tea. It seems very. It does seem very English <laughs> of the period. <laughs> Part of the whole persona, right? <laughs> right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you ever been a coffee person somehow? <laughs> I'm just imagining you with your you know Fortnum and Mason tea. Getting into the the mindset of the period, right? And the spelling, if I'm lucky. Right, exactly. Um, so, do you have any advice for aspiring writers? I mean, you know, clearly you you started in kind of this atmosphere of secrecy, and now you're a success. You're writing full time. Um, any any suggestions for people who might want to embark on a similar path? Um, well, I, I I've heard it said by many, uh, and one of the first things to do is just just write. Uh, I've known I've known a number of people over my life who, uh, you know, said they wanted to be writers, and some of them I feel even probably wrote better than I do, but they didn't write anything. They just kept talking about it. So that's critical. I also think if people are interested in in, in working in, in romance, and it's probably true of other fields too, which I don't know about, but the Romance Writers of America is a huge resource for them. Um, they have they have many classes. They have you can find a critique group. You can um, go to the conferences and meet editors and uh, other writers and agents. And so uh, I, I think they're they're a huge help for people who want to get into that particular field. I, I think you know along with doing lots of writing, you need to also get good responses to your writing. And sometimes if you show them show your work to your family or your good friends. They won't really want to, I mean, they'll just want to tell you you're wonderful, which is a good thing, too. <laughs> but, uh, it helps the ego, but not necessarily the book. Right. You need people who will give you just, you know, a, a kind but honest response to your writing and say, well, you know, this really works for me and that doesn't, and so that you can, you know, get better and learn. So I, I think um, I think writing, writing lots, writing as much as you can, and then getting, you know, into the community of, of writers and uh, other aspiring writers who will 
used in it when we. So are you coming to New York in July for RWA for the Romance Heroes of America? Very sadly, I'm not going to. Yeah, very sadly, I'm not going to make it this year. But uh, but I have gone, and um, it's it's both overwhelming and exciting and fun, and I do recommend the experience. So what what kind of community of writers do you have locally to you, or are there people you connect with online? Uh, mainly online. I have an online writers group uh, that I'm part of, and which is a very diverse group. It's not ways we write quite different things, and so it's very interesting to um, get you know the opinions of get the opinions of readers who might not read your book as a matter of course. I mean, they they like other things, uh, and um, so I. Uh, so I'm, I'm mainly doing it online now. I have in the past have a, had a, had had an in-person uh, writer critique circle, but right now I'm I'm using the web. Well, it sounds like you've got a great team around you, one way or another. Yes, I do. I do. We've been talking with Jane Ashford, and you can find her book "Married to a Perfect Stranger" in stores right now. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers joins us long distance from the Bologna Book Fair. Stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is calling from Italy to report on the Bologna Book Fair. Hey, John, how is it over there in Italy? It's great. I, I, I am reluctantly, you know, I know the weather has not been particularly awesome in New York, but um, this is probably the, the nicest uh, Bologna <laughs> Book Fair I've been to since the first one I went to, so it's been a beautiful, lovely, springy kind of week. Oh, that sounds wonderful. wonderful. Well, Happy and sad to say. We're finally getting some spring weather back here in New York, so hopefully it'll stick around for, for when you come home. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've heard people describe the Book Fair as, as sunny. Do you get a lot of sunshine actually in the conference center there? You know, you do. I mean, compared to uh, the Javits Center, for you know where a lot of publishers end up for BEA, um, a lot of the halls are are fairly well lit, and there's a lot of um, uh, you know, there's a lot of glass, you know, and things like that to let the light in. And there's also people are often cutting between halls, um, which gives you a little chance to pop up the side when you kind of cut through from one hall to the other. So you actually can, you know, quite enjoy the weather in a lot of ways at the show because there's just a lot of places to hang out outside um, in and around the complex. So are are you working on your tan, or are you spending more time chatting with people? Well, I you know, I, I still was stuck inside for most of the fair, as with everybody else, I guess. But, um, you know, I, didn't, I did not bring sunscreen, so I guess I'll let you guys be the judge when I'm back in the office. <laughs> so tell us the feeling of the fair this year. This is How, how many times have you gone now? This is my fourth uh, time going to the fair, and... Um, the mood has been very upbeat. Every, almost everybody I talked to felt like it was a busy fair. I, you know, we won't get attendance numbers for a little while yet. It felt a little less crowded maybe than in, in years past, but it didn't seem to be having an impact on business getting done. I mean, whenever I went up to the agent center, um, you know, the agents were all you know jam-packed with appointments. And mm-hmm. same thing when I'm trying to sneak in an interview with, in with a publisher, it was you know tricky because they're all you know plenty busy, and you have to right. sort of time you know get the time right to spring on them, and you know hammer them with questions about what's selling and what people are interested in. So walk us around the fair a little bit. You mentioned the Agents Center. Is this where agents make meetings with publishers? 
Exactly. So this is they they sort of. <laughs> They're sort of literally sitting above the fair. They're in this sort of secluded little second floor level that overlooks uh, the, the the main floor below, and it's just you know rows upon rows of agents from all around uh, the world, really, and um, a lot of U.S. agents. And they're basically meeting with some of the maybe their sub agents they work with or with foreign publishers, um, and basically just showing what they are you know what they have rights to and what um, they're trying to maybe sell into other markets. So are a lot of translation deals and foreign rights deals done at this fair? This is all children's books, correct? Correct. This is, um, you know, one of the, the big uh, book fairs, you know, along with uh, Frankfurt and London and uh, in terms of international fairs. But this one is the only one that I can think of that I know of that is only children's books, you know, children and young adults. So um, as far as, you know, deals getting, you know, completely hammered out at the, at the fair, that isn't exactly what happens. I mean, it, it's really about laying the groundwork and, uh, it sort of sets the stage, and then there's a lot of follow-up that happens in the weeks after the fair, hoping to sort of secure those deals. And a lot of times it's people who are interested in something and they want to take a look, and you know, but they're going to need a little time to figure out how it fits into their list and if that's something they want to acquire and maybe weigh it against the other things they've seen at the fair. Could you tell us of some of the, uh, some of the books that you heard uh, as you were walking around or meeting with people? Yeah, well, so you know, this, you know, everyone, everyone sort of always wonders, you know, is there going to be some breakout book, something that everyone is sort of in a feeding frenzy after and competing after? Um, that wasn't the case this year. There was not one single title that kind of rose out to be the book of the fair that everyone was interested in. Um, with that said, I talked to a lot of publishers and a lot of agents, and in general, it seemed like um, for most everybody I talked to that, at least in the young adult world, the books for teens. Um, there's still, you know, a strong, inf- uh, a, a strong interest in books that are a little bit more realistic. Um, you're thinking, you know, with the popularity of John Green's books in recent years and Rainbow Rowell and Sarah Dessen and things like that, that there's, there's still an interest in, uh, or there's a, a sort of continuing interest in realistic teen fiction um, compared to maybe something that, you know, the, 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 uh, the dystopias of years past or, or the paranormal kind of craze before that. Um, with that said, I, um, a lot of the folks I talked to said it's not enough just to have a contemporary story. Everybody's looking for a twist or something that feels really special and stands out and is unique. Um, I know unreliable narrators are kind of popular or maybe some big um, kind of issue-oriented thing, something that helps it you know, stand out from the pack a little bit. So we're, we're not likely to see the next Hunger Games anytime soon is the sense I'm getting here. Yeah, I don't know that I... You know, I did hear some rumblings about... Um, a book about witches sort of maybe getting some attention on, on the British side of things. And, you know, last, I think it was last year, um, uh, another witch book, Half Bad, um, you know, came out and was doing very well. That might have been two years ago. I'm sorry. They, they do kind of blend together a little bit. <laughs> but in any case, um, you know, witches kind of had a little moment, and, and that maybe is still continuing a little bit. There's still, the thing is, these are, these are generalizations. And, like, every right. publisher around the world, even within a country, you know, you, you can't necessarily say, oh, well, the Germans want this this year or, or the Koreans are like this, um, because even within one of those geographic markets, there's still going to be variations in what one house or another house is looking for. So you know, we, we sort of see these broad trends, and I, I do hear, you know, I did hear a lot of similar things in terms of what people were asking for, but at, at the same time, there's always room for people to find things. And um, you know, what, one thing that several agents said is that it's kind of nice when there's not this one book that is kind of grabbing everybody's attention, because then it sort of gives you a chance to actually, you know, show what you've got. And, like, everything has a chance in some ways, and you can maybe find homes for things that um, maybe wouldn't have otherwise. 
So what is it like there for, for you know, Italian, French, German, or other uh, foreign publishers? I mean, are American publishers going there looking for books to buy in translation as well? Yeah, it really does go both ways. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, both you know, talk to, you know, American agents and publishers about what they are sort of trying to sell into foreign markets, but there are also definitely editors at the fair who are looking um, for things. I've talked to uh, some picture book publishers uh, this time around who said they had, you know, because this this show, there's arts and, you know, artwork is really front and center. There's, illustri- you know, example, examples of illustration everywhere. There's illustrators you know, come to the show in droves, hoping they're going to um, maybe, you know, make a connection that might lead to a book project down the road. It, it's different than um, a show like BEA that, for the most part, is um, limited to the industry. There, there's a lot of the general public at the show. Um, you know, I've seen, you know, kids in strollers being pushed around. I've seen, hmm. uh, I saw a girl on rollerblades yesterday. It's sort of like, <laughs> and, and, and then you've got these illustrators every, walking around everywhere with their portfolios. It's, it almost feels a little bit more like you're trying to do business at the auto show where like the general public is also in the mix. So it's, it's different than some of the other uh, fairs in that way. That sounds like a, a lot of fun. Is the, is the mood generally kind of upbeat and optimistic? It seems like it. And I think, you know, the weather made a big difference this year. The last two years have been uh, kind of cold, kind of gross, kind of rainy. And, you know, the fact that it's, it's, it's a beautiful city and it's, you know, children's books in general, you know, it, it, this is an enthusiastic industry. And, um, yeah, the mood was definitely good this year, all, pretty much all around as far as I could tell. I feel like publishing is generally a, a pretty enthusiastic industry. We're we're not <laughs> in it for the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to love it. And you got to push it. Right. You got to find room for it in a crowded, uh, in a crowded landscape. So, so what happens next after people come home from Bologna? And you mentioned that uh, you know, a lot of deals get hammered out. Um, does this just feel like the the starting point for a lot of things? It really is. You know, I, again, talking to some of the agents at the at the show. You know, it, every once in a while, some deals will get signed right before the show, and that I think um, publishers and agents love to use as ammunition. Like if they can wrap up maybe a couple foreign rights deals before the show, that's like ammunition to be like, hey, and you know, uh, the British just jumped on this, and the Italians are on it, and there was a there was an auction in Germany. Um, so that's some ammunition with, when you can sort of have that before the show, and then but after the show, you know, you, there's you've got a, you know. A weekend, a week's worth of appointments on the half hour, you know, every half hour, and you know, if anybody's interested in anything, you're probably, you know, following up with them, maybe sending, you know, some PDFs, maybe, uh, you know, getting getting them the chance to look a little bit more closely about um, the books they were interested in, and you know, hopefully uh, get some deals signed. So I'm curious about translations, and and uh, it it seems that certain categories, certain uh, kinds of books like uh, cookbooks or, or books of you know contemporary poetry don't always necessarily translate well into another language. How is that feeling with with children's books? I mean, is there a difference, say, between picture books and maybe young adult novels? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think no matter what category you're working in, children's or adult, um, cost is always a factor when it comes to translation, um, and that. You know that makes things tricky. Uh, you know, it, it just—it's not enough to just acquire the book. You know, somebody's got to translate it, and that—you know—that's not free. Um, certainly, there's a difference between translating, you know, a massive doorstopper of a of young, young adult novel versus a um, a picture book. Um, in fact, one of the agents I talked to uh, 
you know, one of her, her books that's done quite well in terms of foreign markets is a, a, a wordless picture book, which is, you know, mm. wonderful for translation, you know, maybe the title, <laughs> maybe the copyright page, but otherwise you're, you're probably okay. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, translating you know, sort of between cultures and things like that, that, that's certainly a factor too. I mean, um, you know, so many times, you know, an American publisher will be explaining a picture book and think it's hilarious, but those jokes don't always translate. And there are certain, you know, again, broad, um, uh, I don't want to say generalizations, but they kind of are like, in terms of uh, historically, like, you know, maybe um, French picture books can be a little esoteric and very unafraid to to confront um, issues like death or things like that. They'll just hit it, you know, head on. Um, I think there's a little tradition of sort of potty humor in the British market, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, these are, you know, having generalizations, grown up on of course. British but, children's books, I can tell you that's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean? So there, there are some, some national characteristics that you can see sort of uh, bleeding through in the types of books uh, out there. And, and sometimes those uh, translate into other markets uh, better than others. Um, I was just in a bookstore here in um, Milan this afternoon, and noticing uh, some picture books that I was familiar with and uh, the difference in titles. And even that was emphasizing um, some bodily humor in some of the books where the American titles did not necessarily put the same emphasis on that sort of thing. (laughs) So you you mentioned uh, Korea as well as the European countries that you've been talking about. Is this really a a global fair or is it primarily for the European markets? No, it, it, it's definitely a global fair. Uh, China actually had a, a very uh, large uh, sort of contingent and stand at the fair, and they have for, I think, a couple of years now at least. Um, and you, you can really find um, publishers from all over the place, um, really every, just about every continent except for Antarctica, I guess. But um, there, it, 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 it's very much a global fair. Um, in terms of Korea, and uh, there's a lot of illustrators coming out of, uh, Korea for picture books and things like that lately. I, I feel like I see more and more coming um, through my desk every year. Um, there was also, I mean, there's a lot of awards announced at the fair as well. Um, the biggest this year is probably the um, Astrid Lindgren Award, which is uh, uh, given out annually. It's it's basically the largest in terms of monetarily, the largest award in children's literature. And that actually went this year, it can go to a person or an organization, and this year it went to a, a South African organization called Praesa, that's a, a literacy organization um, sort of promoting reading down in, uh, based out of Cape Town and down in South Africa. Nice. And um, there's another prize uh, called the BOP Prize that they've just started a couple of years ago, actually. And with that, it, it, this is also done in association with the fair. They, they pick sort of top um, publishers for the year in six uh, geographic regions all around the world. Imagine the coup of being the first publisher to sell Antarctic rights. <laughs> I, I'd love to see it. You, know? you could lord it over everyone forever. <laughs> Never buy your own drinks again. Well, this, sound, this sounds like a really good time. Did you see any books that particularly captured your attention or your interest? I'm often racing around so much talking to people that I didn't have as much time this year to really peruse uh, the stands uh, too closely in terms of you know seeing what was on... Uh, you know what was on offer, but what I do love seeing is just um, books that I am familiar with, maybe books that either came out in the U.S. or that originated abroad, and just seeing them, uh, the different versions of them on different stands. You might see the same picture book on three or four different stands in three or four different languages, and just seeing you can you can see the evidence all around you of uh, 
the way these books are sort of being seeded throughout the world and for different markets, which is pretty cool. Oh, that is. And I bet, it, I, I bet, I, I know when I travel to Italy or other countries, I'll see books that, uh, by, by authors I wouldn't necessarily have thought would have had wide, wide appeal. And, uh, and that's always, that was, that's always pretty, pretty exciting too. Yeah. I, I, I can't resist, you know, popping into the bookstores when I'm over here and just seeing, you know, what, what are they promoting? What, you know, how, and how does it align with, uh, yeah, U.S. bookstores and what you know—it's being uh, what's you know big over there at the moment. When I was growing up, I, I took a couple of trips to Paris, and I was studying French at the time. And I loved buying copies of popular books that I'd already read in English, so that I could practice my French. Uh, so it's uh, they, these translations always have uh, a number of different uses mm-hmm. and a very broad appeal. Well, thank you so much, John. Uh, it's really great to have your insider perspective, and I hope you enjoy that springy weather in Italy. Thank you so much. Talk to you guys again soon. Thank you, John. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Mario Marazzitti, author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of book publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 